This is the Mark series part 41, and I think the most ironic passage in the Gospel of Mark. So we're going to be covering this today. The triumphal entry is what it's often called, but I, I think of it as the ironic entry. I, uh, I don't know if, <laughs> if people need to change the name of it to that. I'm not suggesting that they need to, but at least for me, that gives me clarity on what exactly is happening here. Calling it the triumphal entry causes us to miss so much of what's actually going on, what's at the center of Jesus's and the crowd's actions in this passage. So this is an exciting study um, because sometimes the passages you're the most familiar with like Palm Sunday, triumphal entry, Jesus entering as they shout Hosanna, like this kind of passage. Sometimes these are the passages that you have the most to learn about because you've just sort of taken a simplistic view of them for years and not realized how much depth is there. Now, sometimes we're bored, not with scripture, but we're bored with our own understanding of the word of God. And we need to just go deeper to get excited again. And so that's what we're going to do today. This is Mark chapter 11, verses 1 through 11. I'm going to read through the passage with you. And then we're going to do a verse by verse study of it to understand it in context. <clears throat> so here we go. Mark 11, 1. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately, as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it and will send it back here immediately. There we go. Then they went away and found a colt tied at the door outside in the street and they untied it. Some of the bystanders were saying to them, what are you doing untying the colt? They spoke to them just as Jesus had told them and they gave them permission. They brought the colt to Jesus and put their coats on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their coats in the road, and others spread leafy branches, which they had cut from the fields. Those who went in front and those who followed, so two crowds, those who went in front and those who followed, shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David, Hosanna in the highest. Jesus entered Jerusalem. And came into the temple, and after looking around at everything, he left for Bethany with the twelve, since it was already late. Okay, that's that's the short passage, and what, one of the things that's remarkable about it is how brief it is. This is a huge, huge moment, yet it's just this like really brief little account of what is a massive watershed moment in the ministry of Jesus. This is like a complete shift. A total change in Jesus' ministry before he was very quiet. Well, I mean, he was doing a lot of things, but he was quiet about certain details. If somebody was calling him, hey, you're the Messiah, he's like, hey, don't tell other people about that. He would heal someone and say, go and don't tell anybody. In most cases, he would tell them to, be, to keep it quiet. And so now he's being bold and open. Uh, in the last passage, he, he lets someone call himself son of David. He's called son of David. He receives it. He heals the man, allows the guy to follow him which means that he's letting someone who's, who's going around telling everybody how Jesus is miraculously the, uh, a miraculous healer who's also the son of David. He's letting that person go with him. And then here, he is orchestrating, deliberately orchestrating an event that is meant to be something like political theater, not in a negative sense, but in a very real sense, political theater that is meant to, to, to say to the world, to the people in Jerusalem, to the Israelites, I am the Messiah, the king, the king, the coming king, the son of David, I am him. This is massive, right? This is a total shift in Jesus' ministry. We should see this strong shift taking place right here, Mark 
at the end of Mark 10 and the beginning of Mark 11, everything changes in Jesus's ministry. And of course, as a result, he will be crucified. So this is a big deal. Um, we call this the triumphal entry. Uh, but like, like I said before, I think that that might be kind of inaccurate to call it the triumphal entry when in reality, it's more like an ironic entry. And al allow me to try to like draw for you why I think this passage is meant to be ironic, why we should see it as ironic. And that helps us understand it and not miss the point. So he's hailed with pomp by the crowd. They say, Hosanna, 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 right? Which, which you know, in laying down their clothes and the palm branches and in the shouting of Hosanna and quoting Psalm 118, which we'll get to, awesome, awesome messianic prophecy of the Old Testament. When we get there, we'll, we'll get to it in detail. But when they do this, they're saying, he's the coming king. But of course, in the mind of the crowd, this, as I've been really harping on in the Mark series, this is really about dominating over Rome. It's about politically liberating the Israelites. And it's not about paying for sin. It is not about being the sacrifice to pay for sin to bring in the new covenant. That's not really what they're thinking. So they're they're hailing with pomp, but not understanding what he's really about. Here's the crowd, right? And their mentality of what Messiah is. And they're, they're screaming, Hosanna, Hosanna, with, with the palm branches and everything. And then here's Jesus. And what's he doing? He's on a donkey. A donkey, which is a beast of burden, a lowly creature, showing the contrast between what the crowd thinks is going to happen and what Jesus has actually come to do. It's seen right there with the branches and the clothes and the shouts and the donkey. I think that's very powerful. So this contrast is, is this is kind of like an epic moment in the Gospel of Mark because this contrast is, is all throughout the Gospel of Mark as we went into, I think it was two weeks ago, or maybe, yeah, I think it was two weeks ago. <laughs> I did a whole thing on just showing the difference between their expectations and how God is trying to fix those expectations, how Jesus is trying to correct them. And yeah, there's so much here. So let, let's go through now verse by verse, Mark chapter 11, verse 1. And I, I can guarantee that almost all of you are going to, I mean, almost everybody listening is going to learn something you did not know about Mark, even if you've studied it before. Uh, there's, there's just such neat things in this passage. So here we go. And if, and if I'm wrong, let me know in the comments section. And then uh, you should be teaching Bible studies <laughs> if that's the case. Um, so Mark chapter 11, verse 1. Now, uh, as they approached at Bethphage, um, and Bethany near the Mount of Olives. Oh, I realized in my notes I had uh, some copied unintentionally from the ESV, which is fine. It's a good translation. But in the Mark series, I'm trying to stick with the NASB just for consistency. So I'm reading now NASB. Forgive me if I if I confused anybody there. I'll, I'll try to be consistent with that. I, I unintentionally. It's a thing. Anyway, Mark 11.1, 1, as they approached Jerusalem at Bethphage and Bethany near the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples. Now, quick comment on the geography of this, at Bethphage and Bethany near the Mount of Olives. Um, first off, pronunciation. Um, in studying, I always listen to other teachers talk about a, a, a passage. And I listen to somebody trying to like pronounce Bethphage properly. And I always think it's ironic when, speaking of irony, when a, when a, a pastor decides he has to pronounce this one word perfectly and, and he wants to get it right like it wasn't originally, except there's a lot of problems with this whole process. And here's why I'm going to encourage you, don't worry about pronouncing words properly in the Bible. For the most part, just, I know this is going to rub some people the wrong way. I'm just saying, don't worry about it, okay? You pronounce almost every name wrong. And that's fine because you don't speak Greek you don't speak Aramaic and you don't speak Hebrew. And if you did speak those languages, then it would matter that you pronounce them correctly. But I, I, I call it Germany. I don't call it Deutschland, right? Like I, I, I call it France. I don't call it like France or whatever, you know, you say 
properly. We say names wrong all the time, and there's nothing wrong with that. So I've heard, you know, Beth Fage, uh, Beth Fage, Beth Fage. I've, I've heard at least, it doesn't matter, okay? I mean, really, stop sweating it. You say Jesus, you don't say Iesus, which is the Greek. You don't say Yeshua, which is the Hebrew, right? You probably say Jesus. You say Peter, you don't, you don't say Petros, right? You don't say Cephas, you know, in Aramaic. You don't say those things. You say Paul, you don't say Shaul. In, in the in, in the uh, the Hebrew you don't you don't do that we do this with every name it doesn't matter okay um Beth Fage Bethany you're pronouncing both of them wrong who cares okay so um, near the Mount of Olives where is this location where is this actually happening now for those that don't know um, and haven't been on a trip to Jerusalem which is most people admittedly those who know you've already got it loaded in your head you know that here's the Mount of Olives and here's Jerusalem and they're right next to each other and there's like Bethany's here and Bethphage was probably more towards the crest of the Mount of Olives and then on the then on the path you go down to the Valley of Kidron and up to Jerusalem through the East Gate. But here's how I can help you. Those of you who have not been to Jerusalem, you've seen pictures of it. And in the pictures of Jerusalem, I, I should have grabbed one to share with you. It is always, I mean, in almost every photo of Jerusalem, it's always taken of in that picture where you have the Dome of the Rock and you're seeing the, 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 some of the wall of Jerusalem. And it's that one particular angle. It's always on that angle. That angle, that photo is, is always taken from the Mount of Olives. So the Mount of Olives is actually not that far from Jerusalem. It's like right there. You know, you, you, and it's not like a mountain, what we think of, especially in more modern Western culture. When we say mountain, we usually think of this very large structure. Instead, the whole area is elevated. There, there are thousands of feet above sea level at that point, And the whole area is just mountainous. So the Mount of Olives isn't a big mountain that they go down and then back up like they're heading to, heading to Mordor or something. Um, rather, this, this Mount of Olives is, is a smaller looking mountain to the naked eye because it's all elevated in that area and you can easily travel down and walk up to Jerusalem. It doesn't take very long. So this area is all about like the ascent. This is like the official and ceremonial ascent. You know, when you're traveling to Jerusalem, you don't see it, you don't see it. You crest the Mount of Olives and now for the first time your eyes see the city of Jerusalem and you see the beautiful temple back then and you're like, this is, this is, this is it guys. We're here, we see it, and you're traveling there. So this is like a, a special moment, you know, when you're heading up to, um, to Jerusalem. Now at Bethany, Bethany is a, is a city where Lazarus and his sisters lived. And so Jesus had, had a place he would stay when he was in Bethany, it seems. And he, he knew people there. Bethphage is near Bethany. We don't know exactly where it is because it's just like a tiny little hamlet. It's not really reserved in most sources. We don't know precisely where the location was it, and some th this is ironic because this will show you people's bias they'll say well Bethphage we don't really have uh, you know located in any other historical sources therefore Mark made it up and then somebody else will look and say look here's a first century source that talks about a, a hamlet called Bethphage and it's obviously on or there about the Mount of Olives so we have a historical source because some people actually forget that the Bible is a historical source but that's another debate for some other day. <clears throat> so, um, yes, th there you go. They're on their way to Jerusalem. That's kind of the, this, the setting is a official entry into Jerusalem. And that's the whole context of Mark 11. And uh, verse 2, it says that uh, Jesus says to them, to these two disciples, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. 
If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, why, what are you doing untying the colt? And they told him what Jesus had said and they let them go. Now, um, oh, I did it to you again. Here. I did it again. I did it again. What's wrong with me? I meant to show you in the NAS. Ah, I apologize. It's live. Okay, so the um, the the whole situation's weird, right? Like, it doesn't seem natural to have to include all these details. There's going to be a cult, and you're going to give them this special phrase if they see you, and then they're going to give you the cult. But we learn a lot from it, okay? So there's a lot of things we're getting from this whole passage. When they go and they find the colt tied outside the door in the street, they untie it. Then in verse 5, the bystanders are like, what are you doing? And then they give them the phrase that Jesus told them to give, and it works. They give them permission, they bring the colt, and then they move on. Now, think of this, that Mark will just pass over massive portions of Jesus' ministry. Yet he spends several verses, like five verses, just talking, two through six, about this colt. So what is the story here? Why is this donkey so important that it's going to be included in all in great detail? And I'm going to give you a few different reasons. And one of them is going to give me an opportunity to harp on prosperity preachers, which I never want to miss a chance to do that. And so, and so here we go. Uh, the first reason I'll say why this is significant, especially to us nowadays, is because Jesus, he was not rich. He was not rich. And there are plenty of prosperity preachers. I'm thinking about doing a video in the future, just a short video, just boom, boom, boom. Here's the reasons why Jesus was not rich. Because there are prosperity preachers that loudly proclaim, of course, he was rich. Of course, he was wealthy. And of course, these guys want the church to give them money so they can be wealthy. And that's, it's, it's so obvious to the rest of the world and the church what's going on here. But yet, they still, they still make it work somehow for them. Um, but anyhow, when, uh, when rich people travel, they do it in style, right? Jesus, when he travels... He doesn't even have a donkey. He's traveling on foot. Jesus is just traveling on foot. He's walking everywhere, it seems. We don't see him riding around. We, when Jesus is speaking to a crowd, we don't see him up sitting on his donkey speaking to the crowd, which would at least make him louder, you know, or, and, and easier to see and that sort of thing. Instead, they're using the acoustics and the physics of the land because Jesus just isn't traveling with a donkey. Why is that significant? Because rich people don't travel like that. People that are wealthy don't travel in those ways. Prosperity preachers, though, they like to say that Jesus owned this donkey. That the owner that's being spoken of is Jesus. He's the owner of the donkey. He has, like, you know, probably houses all over the place. He's got a place in, in uh, Bethphage. And, you know, he says, go get my donkey. And if they ask you, tell him, oh, it's the boss. Boss needs it, you know, and, and he's the owner of the donkey. Against this, though, is Luke 19.33. And, and I, I'm honestly, I'm always surprised when prosperity preachers have good comebacks for, for, for passages because you get the feeling that they don't pay any attention to scripture at all. So when they, actually, when they start quoting a lot of verses and you're like, wow, you, you do pay attention to scripture. You just pay attention to it for the sake of leveraging it for financial gain. That, so they pay, a, like, they're really good at knowing the verses that would benefit them financially. Uh, at any rate, <clears throat> Luke 19.33 tells us who the owner of the cult was. It was the bystanders. Uh, as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, why are you untying the colt? Okay, so the owner was not Jesus. The owner was somebody else. That's, that's the lesson there. Jesus lived poor. In fact, even though, and some would say, well, Jesus had a treasurer. Judas was the treasurer, so Jesus must have been rich. He has his own treasurer. 
And this is a distortion of what Judas's role actually was. In fact, in the passage where we learn the most about this, it's when this woman breaks the alabaster flask and she pours the oil out on Jesus and Judas complains. He wants the money from the flask to go to the treasury because he's stealing from the treasury. But notice this, this treasury is not Jesus's personal wealth because in order to justify it, you know, selling it and taking such a large sum into the treasury, he has to say that he's using it for the poor. Judas says, oh, you know, we could have sold this and, and bought much food for the poor. So Judas thinks that in order to even justify having such a large donation coming in above and beyond their needs, they've got to use it to spend on the poor and take care of others. So it seems that the, that the funds, the general funds that were there for not just Jesus, but for the 12 and for the ministry that they were doing, that those funds went to the necessities, not the amenities, and that those funds beyond that went to the poor. That's what it looks like to me. So take that prosperity preachers, repent become a real preacher. Um, all right. And then the second thing we get from the donkey is this. Jesus is arranging this intentionally. Uh, in Mark laboring to share this thing in so much you know, detail that strikes us as odd. It's meant to strike you as odd. It's meant to get your attention. He's arranging this whole thing intentionally. This is the big shift in Jesus's ministry. Just like the way he treated the blind man, all of a sudden he lets somebody call him son of David publicly. He doesn't rebuke him. He doesn't tell him to be quiet. He heals him and he lets the guy follow him. This is what happened right before the triumphal entry. This is now a public intentional event saying, I'm the son of David. I am the one who is to come. That's the whole idea. He's arranging this thing. That, that's why he tells him, here's the, here's, the, here's the phrase you're going to use. In fact, let's talk a little bit about this phrase. This has been a puzzle. When I was younger, uh, having read this uh, just the first time reading through, it's funny how I can remember like my first time reading a scripture, but I don't remember like the 30th time reading it. But uh, anyhow, at any rate, I remember the first time I read through and I'm reading through this triumphal entry passage and I thought to myself, um, I, I guess it was like he just knew, Jesus just knew that these combination of words, the Lord has need of it and we'll send it back here. He just knew that those combinations of words would just result in the man giving the donkey over. Like, like God just sort of knew that it would just cause that effect if you just say this right thing. But now I actually have a different view. I think that what's happening here is a deliberate password. I think it's a passphrase. Jesus, we know from the other gospels, had a lot of contact in Bethany and in the area. He'd been to Jerusalem multiple times. Mark highlights this. Some people act like Mark is saying this is Jesus's only trip to Jerusalem. Jesus's ministry was only a year. I think that that is going beyond what Mark is saying. Mark is simply trying, I think, the Gospel of Mark is trying to draw this strong emphasis on the final trip to Jerusalem by not talking about the others so it stands out as even stronger. This is a shift in the ministry. But at any rate, he, he had other trips to the area, so he probably had something arranged. He could have easily sent someone else ahead earlier on and said, hey, when I come to pa you know next Passover, please have a, have a donkey ready. I'm going to need it. It needs to be one no one's ridden and I'll send someone for it. And so then they go, what are you doing? And they go, the Lord hasn't even, they go, okay, yeah, this was, this was the plan. That's what I think it looks like. That seems like the most obvious answer to that question. But there's a bit of a puzzle in the Greek and it has to do with manuscript issues in that verse where it says the Lord has need of it and we'll send it back here. So let me, uh, let me take it to you and I'll, I'm not going to try and unwrap the whole puzzle, but I think there's an interesting observation we can make about it. This phrase, the Lord has need of it, and immediately he will send it back here. Okay, so that phrase, um, the debate is who is the Lord in that phrase and who's the one sending it back? 
Who's the one sending it back? And so as you see in the NASB, what they've done is they've, they've interpreted the Lord as God with the capital L there. They've interpreted it as being God. And then the immediately he will send it back here. Jesus is not talking about um, what you say to the, to the people who own the donkey. He's saying the donkey owners will send the donkey back here. The he is the donkey owners. Now, the, the other debate, the other side of the debate, and other translations will have it this way sometimes, is that the Lord is Jesus. And then Jesus has need of it. And immediately, very soon, Jesus is going to send it back here. So you're telling the donkey owner, you'll get it right back. Um, and, and here's the reason why there's a debate. Uh, there's a textual variant that's, that's discussed there as well. But here's the thing that everyone can get. The phrase the Lord at this stage, at this stage in the development and the, and the growth of Christianity, that phrase the Lord, ha kurios in the Greek, this phrase is specifically used for God. You just don't really use, you could use ha kurie, kurie, uh, these other uses of kurios, other ways of saying it to refer to other lords and masters and rulers. But when you say ha kurios with like the, the definite article ha, you're pretty much always referring to God. That's how you're using the term. So without any really strong reason to think otherwise, you mean God when you say that. Remember, they stopped using the term Yahweh or Jehovah and they would use kurios as the Greek replacement for the name of God in Hebrew. So Hakurios was God. So it's just natural to think this is talking about God has need of it. Yet, when you just casually read the passage, you'd think it was Jesus. The Lord has need of it and immediately he will send it back here. So this has caused, okay, do you take the, the more, it seems to me the more simple reading, which is like God has need of it and he will send it back here, which would be a reference to Jesus sending it back. Or do you start to go, okay, it might feel a little awkward, but we're going to we're gonna split this thing up. The he is the owner is going to send it back here. And it, it feels uncomfortable and awkward. It doesn't feel natural. I think this might be an interesting thing. It's kind of like what the when Jesus healed the demoniac earlier in Mark. And he heals him. And he tells him, go and tell the people what great things the Lord, kurios, the Lord has done for you, which is, refers to God. And... Um, uh, and he goes and, the, and the, he tells everyone what great things Jesus had done for him. And so it's, it's a deliberate fusion of the identity of God and Jesus in the gospel of Mark. And it's exactly like Mark to have this subtle kind of theology going on. A subtle but profound implication of the deity of Christ. So I, I think that that's what's happening there. And I thought it was kind of cool. Now, why is it that this donkey is one on which no one has ever sat? Here's another puzzle for us. Why Why is this donkey one on which no one has ever sat? I think it just highlights the uniqueness and the ceremonial importance of the event. Just like how Jesus was laid in a tomb in which no one else had laid, he rides in on, into Jerusalem on a donkey on which no one else has ridden. This may also have connotations about how he is a different, a, a different kind of king. Though he's the son of David, he's not riding in on someone else's authority. Uh, let me give you an example. Kings back then, when they wanted to take someone else's kingdom, what they would sometimes do was take their stuff and use it publicly. And so this is found in a, in a disgusting fashion in the Old Testament. Uh, and yeah, the Old Testament has all kinds of disgusting things because it records what real sinners actually did. But it has this, this, uh, the accounts of people sleeping, one king who wants to take over the kingdom, sleeping with the concubines or the wives of the former king who he just deposed. And so he's sleeping with them really as a political move to say, I have his power now. So riding on another man's donkey is, is somehow borrowing from his power, his authority. Jesus rides on a donkey that no one else has ever ridden, perhaps as a way of showing that his kingdom is transcendent above and beyond any other man's authority. He, he is, he's the one who's not just inheriting. He is the authority. 
So this is in Daniel, book of Daniel, we see he's, he's the stone which was a shape without hands that comes and wrecks the kingdoms of the world and takes over and expands and controls all. So he's not only the, the king, he's a king of a different quality. He is the king of the universe. He is the creator of all things. And so I, I think that there's, and you might be like, Mike, you're reading a lot into a donkey no one's ever written. And I'm, and I'm, call it conjecture. That's fine. I'm totally, totally cool with that. You just put it in your thinker and consider it. I think that there's a significance that we might be able to draw out of that. Then in verse seven, in verse seven, we have the following. They brought the colt to Jesus and put their coats on it and he sat on it. And many spread their coats on the road. And others spread leafy branches, with, uh, which they had cut from the fields. Then we have them crying out, those who went in front and those who followed. Keep in mind, the crowd's before him and behind him. So he's got a caravan. You know, there, there's the people leading the way and the people following behind. He's in the middle. And they're crying out, um, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. So let's talk about this donkey for a while. Let's have some donkey talk for a while here. The donkey has a lot of significance in the Old Testament and in prophecy and specifically in messianic prophecy. Now, these are things which were very obvious to the Jews at the time, which later on we have to go uh, being not having been raised our whole lives with Old Testament studies. We have to then go and dig in and say, hmm, what is the, the reason for all this? What I'm saying here is the Jew of the day would have known exactly what Jesus was doing. This was not a secret. This was not subtle. This was a loud proclamation that he is the king coming to, to sit on the throne of David to be the Messiah. So this is a huge deal. It's predictive. It is not just coincidental. So Zechariah 9.9, this passage would have been in the mind of the Jew as Jesus was entering Jerusalem. Rejoice, O greatly, daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. By the way, so this is specifically about Jerusalem, specifically about the city he's entering now. Behold, your king is coming to you. Okay, it's about the messianic king. It's about that future coming king. And what is he like? He's just and endowed with salvation. This is, this is beautiful. He's endowed with salvation. Jesus, actually, his name means God is salvation. And so he, he has salvation with him. He's, he's just, he's righteous, and he, and he has salvation. This, of course, fits the gospel so perfectly because Christ is the righteous one who dies for the unrighteous. He is the holy given for the sinner, and he has salvation with him. But look at how it's described. It's just like Palm Sunday. It's just like the ironic entry. And so there they are shouting out, oh, shout in triumph, as they are. But how does he come humble? Or, yeah, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on the colt, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So this passage is not meant to be like, how how amazing that was fulfilled. Jesus entered in a, a donkey. I don't think it's that amazing just that someone enters Jerusalem on a donkey. But as you'll discover, it's more significant than people realize. It's not just that it's predictive prophecy. It's that it is giving a context. Get, get this, for the work of the Messiah. It's showing us what Jesus was meant to do. He's coming bringing salvation, but he's not coming with, like the way they think. He's coming humble and he's coming mounted on a donkey, right? This is, this is a lowly beast of burden, that kind of creature. Just like as Jesus said in Mark 10, 45, just a few verses back, giving us a mission statement for his, for his coming. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. So Jesus is here to serve. And that's why he's on a donkey. The donkey is a beast of burden, a beast of service. This is why he's humble. So 
beautiful, beautiful. That's just Zechariah 9.9. So this was in the mind of the Jew. They knew that this was about Messiah. This is this was the thinking of the time. Okay, this isn't later Christian in, in, interpretations. They're like, that's about the Messiah. When they see Jesus coming in, they think he is claiming to be the Messiah. And if you're like, but everybody entered on donkeys. Actually, not true. We'll talk about that in a minute. Let's talk about King Solomon briefly, though. Solomon's actually connected to donkeys as well. In uh, the, the inauguration, the entrance of Solomon as king, he comes in on a donkey. Now, why is that significant? Because Solomon is the son of David, the initial son of David, who is the prototype. I'll, I'll use that. And, and I've talked about this in my Jesus uh, in the Old Testament playlist. I've talked about this in huge amounts of detail. But Solomon is the prototype of the son of David. He's, he's like an example of what the future ultimate son of David will be like. Why? Because he is the first son of David to take over the throne after David. And here he comes in on a donkey. So that's also significant. And uh, keep in mind that Jesus has just publicly been called son of David in the Gospel of Mark, at least, for the first time. Which means that it's meant to draw our attention to that even more. Then there's this passage, Genesis 49.10. And a lot of commentaries think that Zechariah, in Zechariah 9 is actually referring to Genesis 49, this passage, when he, when he says this, those things about the donkey. So here we go. Um, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, a, a rare prophecy in Genesis, shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until Shiloh comes, which ultimately is going to be a person. There's going to be a person who shows up, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples, or perhaps the Gentiles even, right? He's going to be the one who's expanding the kingdom to rule over the world. He ties his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. The vine could be a reference to Jerusalem itself. Um, but here he comes, he, he enters in and he ties a donkey. Why is there a donkey? Well, Zechariah seems to be tapping into this, connecting the ultimate king of Judah, prophesied king of Judah, with this event in Jesus' ministry. He washes his, excuse me, his garments in wine and his robes in the blood of grapes. Um, the blood of grapes thing is kind of interesting because you could take this washes his garments in wine, his robes in the blood of grapes to be he's, he's trampling over his enemies. Uh, it could be that. Or it could be that he, um, he's, he's, which Jesus says at his second coming, it could be that he is bringing us his own blood. His, his, he's going to be covered in blood, so to speak. The blood of grapes is symbolic of blood a lot. And so he's going to be, you know, covered in that. And, and this, this may be, a context as well. So uh, both may be true, a reference to like communion, effectively Christ and what he brings us. Now, there's more. Um, there is in scripture in the Old Testament kind of a prophetic scorn, like a bad attitude <laughs> towards war horses. I don't know if you've ever noticed this in the Bible. Uh, there tends to be kind of a bad attitude towards war horses. Isaiah 2.7, Isaiah 31.1, Micah 5.10, Haggai 2.22. And since you're watching this pre-recorded, you could always back up and listen to those you know, verse references again if you need them. Uh, but an example that you probably know well is Psalm 20, verse 7. Some boast in chariots and some in horses, but we will boast in the name of the Lord our God. So we're not boasting in those things, we're boasting in God. And so this is, what's interesting about this is prophetically in the Old Testament, kind of spread out, you have this idea that we're not earning it, we're not by our works and our might obtaining the salvation, God is going to give it to us. And ultimately, when Jesus brings salvation, he enters in on a donkey, not a war horse, because it is through service and sacrifice and not through our labors and efforts and fighting that we will be saved. I think that's pretty significant. 
Interestingly, Psalm 20, verse 7, the, some boast in chariots and horses, but we'll boast in the name of the Lord our God. That verse is actually a Hosanna psalm also. Verse 9 has the phrase Hosanna as well. Now let's look slightly more carefully at Zechariah 9, 9. In Zechariah chapter 9, 9, I actually read this. We're going to read the next verse. Um, there's context that talks about sort of scorn on horses as opposed to, say, the donkey, right? So he comes in on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. And then, verse 10, God says, I will cut off the chariot, the chariot from Ephraim, and the horse from Jerusalem, and the bow of war will be cut off. He will speak peace to the nations, and his dominion will be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. So this is one who conquers through serving, conquers humbly, and then he speaks peace and ends 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 the wars, so to speak. And so this is a great picture of Jesus humbly serving. You see the the irony of the of, of Palm Sunday. It's in the Old Testament prophecies. It's not just in the events and, ad, and actions of Jesus. He's just deliberately fulfilling what was the irony prepared before time. And I think it's such a picture of, of humility and serving through the cross. The next thing we get in the Mark passage is cloaks on the colt. We're just analyzing the elements of what Jesus fulfilled. Remember, it was all orchestrated thoughtfully. So there's cloaks on the colt. Now, that's probably a practical issue. No man had ridden this thing. There isn't a saddle for it. So they put their cloaks on it. It's an honorable thing to lay your cloak down. And so you're, you're, you're exalting Jesus, um, probably really for the first time in his ministry, that kind of exaltation. And then there's cloaks on the road. And this is different. The cloaks on the road is different than the cloaks on the colt because there's no real practical need to put cloaks on the road. There's just not a need. But there is an Old Testament precedence. The only other time that I know of in the Bible where cloaks are put on the road for someone who's traveling is when Jehu is announced king in the book of 2 Kings chapter 9. Here it is in verse 13. Jehu's coming and they, they hurried and each man took his garment and placed it under him on the bare steps and blew the trumpet saying Jehu is king. It's a red carpet treatment. That's the point. Cloaks and, and, and palms on the road is about saying you're the, you're the king. You're the king. The only other time we read about this, in the Old Testament at least, is when someone's being declared king, uh, king of Israel. So the branches on the road are the same thing. It's the same purpose for putting branches on the road. He is getting the red carpet treatment. Okay, I'm going to harp for a moment about the fickle crowd preaching point. Um, you've heard it before probably. Most of you, a lot of you have. And if you're new believers and you haven't heard this stuff, well... Welcome. Welcome to my channel. You're going to hear all kinds of stuff. It's going to be, it's going to be awesome. <laughs> You're going to be so much, so much biblical knowledge that you can, as much, as much as you have time to absorb. But many of us have heard the, the preaching point, and maybe we've even preached it, that the same crowd who shouts Hosanna today, a week later, will be shouting, crucify him, crucify him. And we preach about the fickleness of the crowd. I, I've, I've kind of for a long time felt a little bit hesitant to do that because I just wasn't sure that we had the same crowd. And so I'd like to share with you some reasons why I, I recommend pastors not make that point. If you want to make that point, fine. Um, you can make it like this. Probably some of the people who shouted Hosanna later shouted crucify him. I, I mean, there's a good chance that somebody in that crowd was doing that. But not the crowd as a whole. So let me build my case as to why. So Jesus, in this case, he brings the crowd with him. This isn't just random people from Jerusalem. He's actually bringing the crowd with, with him, meaning that they're his followers. 
It's not just random people in the city who suddenly get excited for no reason and scream Hosanna. These are people who've heard about Jesus, they've thought about Jesus, they've decided they might want to follow Jesus, and it doesn't represent everybody in the city. So let me give you an example of how Jesus did not come before. In John 7, we um, we read about Jesus' brothers wanting to mock him, effectively. And they say, you know, hey, if you want to be known, go up to the feast, Right? Go up to the feast. They say, um, leave here and go into Judea so that your disciples may also see your works, what you're doing. And then he's, they're suggesting that he goes up to Passover, ironically, to publicly proclaim himself as, as the Messiah and as the king. That would be like a, an easy way for him to do it. And he end up, ends up doing it later. But he tells him, no, 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 it's still early in my ministry. My time is not yet here. And so then he will not do it yet. So he sends them up to the feast. Go up to the feast yourselves in verse 8. I do not go up to this feast because my time is not yet fully come. Now, what he meant by go up was go up in this official capacity like he does on Palm Sunday. So having said these things, he stays in Galilee. And then after they leave, Jesus goes up to the feast. We read about, then he himself also went up, not publicly, but as if in secret. So Jesus does go up and, and to the Passovers and the feast, you know, he would go up more privately. He might start teaching and draw a crowd and then he would ditch the crowd. And so he's being very strategic, but not today. No, now he's going publicly. And so he's there with the travelers, with the believers in Jesus, and he is with a crowd. Maybe they weren't true, genuine followers of Christ, but they're at least in name. And that's different than before. The crowd is the crowd he brought with him, primarily. The number one group is the crowd he brought with him. The second issue here is the crowd's identified as those who go before and follow him in multiple gospel accounts. We've read about that in Mark. We also read about it in Matthew. But in Matthew, we find out that this is different than the people of the city. And this is probably the most important verse for testing this sort of preaching point. And just because something preaches well doesn't mean we should share it. I can't tell you how many things I think I'm going to share. And I go to double check the passage, double check the context. And I go, oh, I guess I can't, I can't use that. <laughs> because count, countless times through the years, I found that some preaching point that I thought preached well because I heard someone else do it wasn't solidly biblical. There's usually some other verse you can use in context to make the same point. Now here, uh, most of the crowds spread their, let's, we're going to read about how there's two different crowds. Most of the crowds spread their coats in the road and, they, and others were cutting branches from the trees and spreading them on the road. The crowds going ahead of him and those who followed were shouting and then they shout Hosanna in the highest. This is the same description as Mark. When he'd entered Jerusalem, all the city was stirred saying, who is this? So the city is one group. The crowds is a different group. They're not the same group. Now, there were some people from the city who joined in and said, Hosanna, we get that from the Gospel of John. John tells us that people from the city came out and joined. But these are probably people who were already favorable towards Jesus. But there's a lot of other people who were in the city that are just like, who's this? I would think they're the most likely ones who were yelling, crucify him later on. So, there you go. I think that we should just, you know, test our preaching points. And let's talk briefly about what they shout. What they shout. Um, in Mark, it tells us they shout... And, and part of it's a quote from Psalm 118, part of it's not. So let me point that out to you. It, it shows, um, oh, I should put it on screen. Mark 11, verse 9 and 10. And here we have them shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That is Psalm 118. Blessed is the coming of the kingdom of our father David. That is not. Hosanna in the highest. That's, you know, very much an allusion to Psalm 118 again. So this extra thing we'll come back to in a minute. Like, why did they add this? But let's talk about Psalm 118. Because Psalm 118 is significant for a number of reasons. 
and we want to get into it in detail. I've been like eagerly waiting to talk about Psalm 118. Couldn't wait to get there in the Gospel of Mark. Here we are, verse 1. Um, and, and a lot of times in the Psalms, this will help you in your study of Psalms, you'll often, not always, but you'll often get a summary of the Psalm, of the point of the Psalm. You'll get it in the first verse or the first few verses. And so often you'll see that as like an introduction that's meant to give you like a grid for which you read the rest of the song. It's like an interpretive grid. So here, give thanks to the Lord for he's good, for his loving kindness is everlasting. And there you go. That's the whole ultimate point of the song. God's loving kindness is everlasting. Oh, let Israel say, let Israel, three groups of people here. His loving kindness is everlasting. Let the house of Aaron say, and so Israel will be the, the Jewish people. The house of Aaron is the priests. Let them say his loving kindness is everlasting. And let those who fear the Lord say his loving kindness is everlasting. That would expand it out. The third group of people would include even Gentile converts, people who are, are not uh, Jewish born, but they, they believe and they fear the Lord. They fear, they fear God. So, so this is this is neat because it, it is kind of a picture of Jesus' ministry to the Jew first and also to the Greek. He brings them all in. And that's a consistent thing in the Old Testament as well. Then in Psalm 118, we get um, this, this, oh, hold on. Okay, verses 5 through 21. Sorry, I just had to find my notes. Uh, 5 through 21 is really about uh, how God delivers the psalmist, how God is the, 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 the one who saves the psalmist from various troubles and trials and problems. But then this psalm ends with this sort of prophetic proclamation that is seen to apply to Messiah. This is the verse they're quoting about Jesus. This is a verse that is of great significance. It's not just a random scripture that they're pulling out to talk about. So let's see here. Verse 22, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Again, this is a shift in the psalm. Suddenly we're talking about something much more grand and much bigger. The ultimate salvation of God, not just an example of God saving you. So the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is literally what is stated right before the part they quote about blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This gives us the context. Now in Mark 12... Jesus is actually going to quote this verse about himself. So he saw it as being about himself. The, the crowd, a few, a, you know, a few days prior, they quote this psalm as being about him. And it was seen as being this sort of messianic thing. I think this is pretty powerful. So they say, it says the, the stone that the builders rejected. Now, I'm going to get there in more detail later. But in Mark 12, I'll just give you a preview. In Mark 12, um, Jesus quotes this verse. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief of the corner. Or the chief cornerstone. But the context is the parable of the vine growers or the parable of the vineyard. And this is where um, the parable is meant to say, God blessed Israel. He bought Israel. He, he put Israel there. And he left you guys in charge to teach them his ways and let them bear fruit. But you keep killing the prophets and killing the, the messengers that God sends. And you keep destroying them. And finally, he'll send his own son. That's the parable of the vineyard. He'll send his own son. And then they end up killing the son. And so Jesus is like, God's going to destroy you. But then he interprets it through the lens of Psalm 118. The builders are the leaders of Israel who decide to rebel against the son of God. And who therefore are rejected and instead even though they're the builders, they reject the cornerstone, yet he still becomes the chief cornerstone and gets put in place. Now, I just want this to sink in. Psalm 118, we're talking this is written like 3,000 years ago. 
thousand years before Jesus, or at least you know six hundred years, depending on I don't I haven't looked into Psalm one eighteen as far as the to confirm the dating of it, but but this this passage it is predicting here's here's the coming of of this Messiah type character you know he's going to show up and the builders the leaders of Israel re- will reject him but God will establish him as the cornerstone anyways. This is so significant. Um, I think it's beautiful. I think it's exciting that we see this kind of thing in the Old Testament. We also see it throughout a lot of examples of the Old Testament. Stephen talks about this in the book of Acts chapter 7, how the Israelites reject Moses the first time he shows up. They reject David the first time he shows up. They rejected Isaiah, Jeremiah, Jephthah, Joseph, right? Remember Joseph's brothers? They sold him into slavery. They keep rejecting the messengers of God and the chosen people of God the first time they show up. They keep ignoring them, rejecting them. Jesus himself said, um, that it cannot be that a prophet would perish outside Jerusalem. So pause for a second. What kind of people write their own, make up their, you know, let's say the Old Testament is made up. They make up their own scripture and they continually ridicule themselves as being ones who are rejecting the work of God and who reject the messengers of God. Like, who does that? Like, what, what religion does that? Like, all religions, when when you look at their holy text, they they... They want to make their heroes look like superheroes, basically, is how it works. But the Bible is really honest about the failings and the failures of the people. And it even predicts that the ultimate coming of the ultimate Messiah will be rejected by the leaders of the people of Israel. Now, many Jews today might think that they won't believe in Jesus because the Jewish leaders rejected him. So he's obviously not the Messiah. But yet the Old Testament seems to imply the opposite is going to happen. I think this is very powerful. So then we have in Psalm 118, um, the phrase, this is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. The, the whole point here is that the builders didn't want it, builders rejected it, but God did it anyways. So God's going to make this thing happen against the wishes and against the plans and against the intentions of the leadership of Israel. That's in Psalm 118 here, this Old Testament uh, prophetic psalm. So he's the chief cornerstone. That's what he's called, the chief cornerstone. In a building back then, a chief cornerstone is considered kind of like the most important stone. Ceremonially and physically, it's the most important stone. It's shaped uniquely. It's, it's going to be shaped differently than all the other stones. And all the other stones have to be shaped according to the shape of the cornerstone. So they have to like be designed to fit with the cornerstone. Um, ironically, the the biggest... The, the irony is so deep here. The, the biggest like most important cornerstone in Judaism and in Israel would be the cornerstone for the temple. And Jesus, though he sees the temple in his day and says it'll all be destroyed, yet he's establishing a new temple that is going to be in him. We're going to be built into Christ. We're we're the temple of God. He's the cornerstone. So all of the theology of, of so many passages of scripture just neatly comes together. I mean, giving us even more reason to support the unity of the scripture. Those who know the word well, you're like, Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, like connections should be firing off in your head, as you as you uh, you you will have to pause the video to just thank God for how good He is. <laughs> Hopefully, um, so everyone else depends on Him. That, that's the idea of Jesus being the chief cornerstone, and this is, of course, our access to God, our forgiveness, our eternal life. It all depends on our connection to Jesus Christ. Beautiful picture of who He is. Then in verse twenty four, it says, "This is the day which the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it." O Lord, do save. We beseech you, O Lord. And that's that's by the way, that's the Hosanna. Do save, save now, Hosanna, which in the time of Christ had kind of become like a hallelujah type word, where it, you don't necessarily mean save now when you say it. 
you you mean it as like a proclamation of 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 faith in the in the God who saves. You know, so Hosanna is like a like a worship term as well. Um, so, O Lord, do save. We beseech you, O Lord. We beseech you and do send prosperity. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. So it's this beautiful, beautiful thing. That this is really. This is this is this is the Israel we want to see. You know, receiving Christ, blessing the one who's come in the name of the Lord, and having their their hearts turned to uh, to to God. Um, yeah, beautiful, beautiful thing. So this is this is the Hosanna thing that they the the crowd quoted, um, and then after this this acknowledgement of him as Messiah. That's what this means. Then we get several short but meaningful statements, starting in verse twenty-seven. The Lord is God, and he has given us light. He has given us light. Now, Jesus, Scripture says, is the light of the world. And also, the Old Testament talks about how the Messiah, in particular, is bringing light to the people. And this is connected to Jesus. I'll share it with you in Isaiah 9, verses 1 and 2. Isaiah 9. This is about the Prince of Peace, right? There will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish in earlier times. He treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt, but later on he shall make it glorious. By the way of the sea, on the other side of the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, which which nobody thought much of Galilee at the time of Jesus, but here it is in prophecy. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. You shall uh, multiply, and it goes on. Isaiah 9 continues and even has more prophetic con- uh, connotations about Jesus. His name's called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, uh, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. Beautiful, beautiful messianic passage in Isaiah. Um, but Jesus specifically, he's the light. He's the light. And so Psalm 118, 27, the Lord, he has given us light. Um, he's given us Jesus. And that takes on even more con- uh, connotations when you think about the fact that Jesus wasn't just, he didn't just show up for us. He was given. God so loved the world that he gave his only son. There was a giving over of Jesus. And that's the next thing you get in, in verse 27. So God has given us light, that giving over, and what bind the festival sacrifice with cords to the horns of the altar. So then Jesus is, <clears throat> is placed upon the altar, so to speak. The, the, there, there's a sacrifice placed upon the altar. Horns of the altar, for those who don't know, and al- the altar would be kind of like a square, tall structure where there was fire below, and this is where the offerings would be made. And there were horns. I mean, they looked, the, the altar didn't look like an animal in any way, shape, or form, right? But it, it just looks like a structure. But on the corners, there's these little horns that would stick up. Now, you could use this to tie an animal too. You could tie the animal to it as the, as the priest is like, I'll get to that one next. So you tie the animal to the horn. Or, or people who want mercy, they would run and they would place their hand on the horn of the altar and they would appeal for mercy. They're like, no, don't, don't, don't kill me. Don't. I, I appeal to God for mercy. Uh, people always get very religious when they're in trouble, right? And so um, and maybe, there's, maybe that's a, a proper, motive, uh, a proper uh, response. <laughs> it's like, oh, Lord, help. Um, but at any rate, the this this whole idea of God has given us light, oh Hosanna and all this, it takes on new understanding in light of the cross. And you say, wait a minute, the festival sacrifice, the festivals are like Passover, right? Day of Atonement. Well, Jesus is our Passover, scripture says. He is the sacrifice, the ultimate sacrifice. He fulfills all the sacrifices. And 
we're binding him to the horns of the altar as part of this whole idea of saving now. God, save now, save now. Here comes the king. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. All right, make the sacrifice. Yet, you get it? He is the sacrifice. That's that's the ultimate revelation that we get here. Now, I have a video on how Jesus fulfilled Passover, how he is the festival sacrifice. Uh, 24 ways Jesus fulfilled Passover. I've linked it below for those who want to see it. And I'll mention it again at the at the close of today's message for those who are interested. I, I really think that you'd, you'd find it to be a blessing. Draw out a ton of ways in which Christ fulfilled the, the festival sacrifice. He is the festival sacrifice uh, who died for us. Then in verse 28, you are my God and I, give, and I give thanks to you. And notice how it changes. You are. Now he's talking first person. You are God. I'm going to talk directly to you. Are. And you're not just God. You're my God. Suddenly, the psalm is entirely relational. When does it become relational? When it's not just about God. It's not just about God and his goodness. It's not just e- externally like third person talk about God. It's, it's, it's rather you are God and you're my God. That word my is very significant. Oh, let me put it on screen for you. That word my is very significant. It means relationship. And when does it happen? After the sacrifice. God's given us light. Make the sacrifice. And now, boom. Now, God, you're not just God. You're not just glorious. You're not just holy. You're my God. You are intimately my God. You are, I I won't just talk about you. I will give thanks to you because now we have relationship through Christ. So then the encouragement is give thanks to the Lord for he's good. His loving kindness is, is everlasting. Or endures forever, another translation. Powerful, powerful, powerful psalm. Beautifully speaking of not only the coming of Jesus into Jerusalem, but the fact that it would result in a sacrifice that would then give us relationship to God. And I do think it's all very subtle. It's it's something I'm getting, under, I'm understanding in light of the cross because that is the ultimate revelation of God. Um, powerful stuff. Now there's more you want to know about Psalm 118, right? There's more than just the exposition of the psalm in light of the cross. There's also the fact that, okay, it was quoted, quoted by the crowd. It's quoted later by Jesus by himself. It was one of the songs of ascent that the Israelites would sing whenever they came to the festivals. And it was the final psalm. The last psalm they would sing heading towards Jerusalem was Psalm 118. So this is a song they're singing at the time already. So this just, I think that just makes it even more interesting. Then it seems to have very possibly been a song Jesus himself sang with his disciples right before he went out to the Mount of Olives, was betrayed, handed over to the the, um, the Jewish authorities, and then Pilate, and, and then crucified. In Mark 14, 26, we'll, we'll get there later, but in Mark 14, 26, it says that before they went to the Mount of Olives, they, quote, sang a hymn. They sang a hymn. Now, because this was the song, Psalm 118 was like the final psalm they would sing at that time anyways, there's a good chance that this is the one Jesus actually sang. Just drawing our attention to that song, meaning for us to really look at it like we just did. Finally, um, there's one important way that what they quoted was different than Psalm 118. Remember they had that phrase, blessed is the coming of our father David. That's not in Psalm 118. Now, why is that there? Because of a, a few things. For one, the Messiah is the son of David. Okay, so he is coming into in the kingdom of David and he's even called... Oddly, our father David, because there's a sense in which the Old Testament even calls the Messiah David. This is because the Old Testament is interested in not just direct prophetic utterances, but poetry as well. So poetically, the son of David, because David's like a prototype for him, one of the types of Christ in the Old Testament, he's like David. In fact, there's a place where in Ezekiel, it's just... It just says David will reign in Jerusalem. And 
people are like, wait, is that David? King David will be raised and reign or the Messiah will reign and he's just called David here. So that may be the case that they're saying coming, blessed is the coming of our father David. They're really referring to Jesus like he is David. Pretty powerful. This is justified because they thought the Messiah would be the son of David and he would unite the people of Israel and all that. But it highlights again the differences between their expectations and Jesus's true mission to give his life a ransom for many. He was doing something that in their eyes would look much less important. But once they got it, they'd realize it was all that mattered. And this is sometimes what we go through in our trials. We're going through hardship. We're going through pain. We're going through suffering. And there's something that we're going through that seems like, God, I just want you to do, I just want you to save now in my version of save now, right? Fix the situation this way. And God is working something else through it that is actually more important in the long term. And if we can see that the crowd misunderstood this, we can encourage ourselves that we may also misunderstand what God is doing in our lives at the moment. So much of our despair isn't just because we're going through hard times. It's because we don't understand why God's allowing those hard times. And if anything, the Bible's teaching us, it, it, it would be on that topic. God is working it together for good. Trust him. If he can use the cross, he can use this. So um, verse 11, we end our study here. Mark eleven eleven. And Jesus entered Jerusalem and came into the temple. And after looking around at everything, he left for Bethany with the 12 since it was already late. So, forgive my allergies are kind of kicking up here. Um, this is a really short, subtle, but also very important verse. Jesus is coming to the temple. All it says is he came to the temple, looked around, and then he left. But this is significant because Jesus is evaluating the temple. He, this is an evaluation, right? The next thing that happens, Jesus comes back next week, we'll get there. And he overturns the money changers tables and he has a whip and he drives people out of the temple, the buyers and sellers. We'll get to that passage later, but this is the evaluation that happens before he comes back and he cleanses the temple and he deals with it. So there's one other point here. Okay. Remember now that the gospel of Mark, unlike the other gospels, it only records one occurrence of Jesus going to Jerusalem. That's not to say he never went any other time, right? Jews went to Jerusalem multiple times a year, but they all did. Okay. We, Mark would have thought so as well, but he, he doesn't talk about those because he wants to highlight this coming to the temple. This is the first time Jesus goes to the temple, Mark 11, 11. And it is a important moment. So let me take you back to Mark 1 and see how he prepared us for this. Mark 1, 1. It says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God, as it is written in Isaiah, the prophet, behold, I send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. That is the opening. It's all about how John the Baptist will prepare the way for the Messiah. And John's fulfilling Isaiah and Jesus is ultimately the one who's coming. But what he's quoting, as we saw in our Mark chapter one part of this uh, study series, is Malachi 3.1. Now you see the connection to the temple and how Jesus coming to his temple is a pretty big deal. He entered again into the, um, oh, that was Mark 3.1. I need Malachi 3.1. Here we go. Behold, I'm going to send my messenger. First thing quoted in the gospel of Mark. And he will clear the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. He'll clear, he'll clear the clear the way before me. Like it's it's it appears to be God who's coming, yet it's 
Jesus who comes. Again, how Mark subtly connects Jesus's identity with God's identity, not trying to imply that he's the father, but but giving us ultimately our, our Trinitarian understanding of Jesus. And so it's ultimately, this is it. Mark eleven eleven is finally where Yahweh, where God comes to his temple. This is a big, big deal. But of course, there's a problem. Who can endure the day of his coming? And of course, this is the issue that we're going to have in the next chapter is that Jesus comes and evaluates. They think they're evaluating him, right? But first he evaluates them and he finds them falling short. And he finds a lot of issues in the temple. We'll get into that uh, next week. Major problems going on in the temple. Um, We have a lot of historical information actually about stuff that was going on back then. Corruption and why Jesus got so upset and overturned the money changers tables and was, I think, visibly angry um, and rightly so. And of course, how we all, some people abuse that to justify their own anger, uh, but we'll get into that in detail. I think that this is, this is made stronger. This whole Yahweh coming to his temple is made even stronger by the fact that Mark just does it just one time. He talks about Jesus showing up and here it is. This is that moment. So this is one short account that gives us the ironic nature of Jesus's ministry. It was prophetically foretold. It was highly anticipated and it was very misunderstood. Ironically though, even the prophecies in the Old Testament, like Zechariah, like Psalm 118, like Isaiah 53, like Psalm 22, they speak of a suffering Messiah who will die for sins. But they just didn't get it. Because when it comes to suffering, we often don't get it. All right. If you want to check out the video, um, 24 Ways Jesus Fulfilled Passover, I did link it below and I hope that it's encouraging to you guys. This is the Mark series. Again, I'm doing verse by verse through the entire gospel of Mark, covering theology, apologetics. You might want to subscribe to the channel if you're interested in you know, learning to think biblically about everything. That's my whole goal here. Just helping you go deep, helping you go deep, spending a lot of hours in prep to try to make hopefully really insightful, thoughtful, helpful studies. As you can tell, I'm more of a, a teacher than a preacher. <laughs> and uh, that's just who I am. That's the way I'm wired. So I'm going to, I'm pushing into that. And I hope that it's a blessing to you. And um, other than that, um, I have a video coming out Wednesday. You guys will see on um a, a tough question about polygamy, if a polygamist gets saved, then on Friday, we'll be live with the Q&A. Show up Friday at 1 p.m. Pacific time, and you guys can ask your questions in the live chat. I'll answer hopefully 20. Shoot for 20 every time. All right, that's it. Lord bless you. Keep your eyes on Jesus. I hope that you've learned not only intellectually from the passage, but that you could apply some of the profound and very necessary application, which is, Lord, we laugh at them because they didn't see purpose in your suffering. Let me learn to laugh at me for not seeing purpose in my suffering. Amen.